If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From unwanted proposals and lingering looks across the ballroom to a wet-shirted Mr Darcy emerging from a lake. The romantic stories of Jane Austen and their countless adaptations have captured the hearts of so many of us. But if we turn to the real historical record of the Regency era, how much truth is there to these stories of happily ever after? Since it's Valentine's Day, Lauren Good spoke to Rory Muir, who's the author of a new book on love and marriage in the age of Jane Austen. Hi Rory, thanks so much for speaking to me today. Hello, Lauren. It's very good to be on the podcast. We're here to talk all about your new book, Love and Marriage in the Age of Jane Austen. I'm sure many of our listeners will have read at least one of Austen's books. So many have taken pleasure from watching love blossom between her characters, a love that always ends up in marriage. We'll track the reality behind these portrayals, as you do in your book, starting at the very beginning. Were there any usual processes followed in the courting stages of these upper-class Regency relationships? There were many ways that couples met in the time, just as there are today. Sometimes people would have known each other for a long time if they were family, friends or acquaintances. People moved in similar social circles. Many of Jane Austen's characters knew the hero who they fell in love with eventually, like Emma and Mr Knightley were family friends from all through her life. Other times they would meet because someone new would come into the neighbourhood. Captain Wentworth first met Anne Elliot when he visited his brother, who was a curate at Kellynch, I think. Then they would sometimes meet in a more public setting. Henry Tilney met Catherine Morland at Bath when the Master of Ceremonies and the ballroom introduced them and they danced together and she was fascinated with his conversation and he was in turn eventually fascinated by her admiration and enjoyment in his conversation. Couples would sometimes be introduced by their parents, though by this time, parents were becoming a little bit wary about trying to set up their children too obviously because children would sometimes resent it or even if it worked well, the marriage then might not be happy and the parents would feel the degree of guilt. Social conventions limited the amount of time couples could spend together. 
but they would take great advantage from social calls or dancing together or generally of anything that gave an opportunity for conversation. And were large age gaps common amongst these Regency couples? Yeah, quite often couples might be 10, 15, 20, even 25 years apart. Usually, of course, the man being older, though not always. There were some examples that I use in the book of women being considerably older than their husband. Both the Duchess of Leinster's second husband, William Ogilvie, was I think seven or eight years younger than her and Lady Anne Barnard's husband, Andrew Barnard, was a good deal younger than her. But it was much more common for the man to be a lot older. Partly this was because most men didn't inherit a fortune and were never going to and they had to make money in their career before they'd be able to afford to marry a woman and support a family. And so they would not think of marrying until they're in their late 20s or early 30s, sometimes much older. Many did marry when they were only a few years older than their wife, when they're in their mid-20s perhaps, but then there was often poverty was a, a problem in the affecting the marriage. And I was quite surprised to read in your book that between 12 to 25% of people in this era didn't get married. Before we delve into the world of Regency weddings and married life, what was it like for those who didn't marry? It varied enormously, just as it would today. There were some people who were very hard up, women who had had to earn some money and the opportunities for women to earn money were very limited and very poorly paid, working as a governess or a companion or a teacher in a school, which were pretty much the only options for unmarried women, were pretty dreadful. But equally, there were women, including someone like Jane Austen, who stayed very happily with their family or who lived an independent life and who were quite well off and had very good lives. The notion of an old maid being a terrible fate was only true if you were a very poor old maid. If you had enough money, as Emma says, if you were quite well off, you could be as pleasant and sensible as anybody else. And for men too, men often were unable to marry until they were approaching middle age. Many men didn't marry, as almost as many men didn't marry as women didn't marry. And their lives were probably fairly much the same as a married man, apart from not having the family, which could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, depending on their circumstances. This was an era in which the dominant politician of the age was William Pitt the Younger, who never married, when Sir John Moore, the British general who died at Corona, never married. And even, surprisingly, the sixth Duke of Devonshire, who you would have thought had every reason to marry, except perhaps the unhappiness of his parents' marriage, he never married. Women were very restricted in their opportunities to have affairs if they were unmarried, if they didn't want to attract scandal. Men had much greater opportunities in that regard. But otherwise, unmarried people had about as many pains and pleasures in their lives, I would think, as married people. They were just rather different. And that's quite surprising. I feel like that's not what we're told, really, about the Regency era, usually. 
No, there was a lot of propaganda at the time. A lot of moralists liked to write about the forlorn plight of unmarried women. And I think most young people at the time supposed that they would get married. They grew up with that expectation. But then if they didn't meet the right person or if they met someone that they fell in love with, like Jane Austen's sister Cassandra fell in love with Tom Fowle and they were engaged, but he died in the wars trying to secure patronage for a clerical position and she never looked at another man, apparently, so far as we know, and neither she nor Jane. Jane turned down an opportunity to marry when she was 26 or 27 and they lived happy and productive lives. I think it was an expectation but a rather unrealistic one that everyone would get married. For those who did say their nuptials, what were weddings like in this period? Most weddings of upper class people were very quiet. They'd be held sometimes in the church. If they were in the church, it was always in the morning because you had to get married before 12 and they'd be followed by a wedding breakfast. But the fashion for a lot of rumbustious carrying on at a wedding was by Jane Austen's day was regarded as quite old-fashioned and undignified and almost slightly improper amongst the gentry classes. More people at the higher end of society would be able to get a special licence from the Archbishop of Canterbury, which enabled them to be married at any time of the day and not in a church. And a great many figures in society were married in the drawing room of their family home. Usually the bride's family were present, but quite often only a few of the groom's family attended, or none of the groom's family. Jane Austen didn't attend any of her brother's weddings, and they were all held in the parish of the bride's family. All the services, apart from Quakers and Jewish people, were held in Anglican churches, so even if you're a Catholic or a Methodist, you had to have an Anglican marriage. You might then go and have a Catholic marriage afterwards. But to get the legal recognition, it had to be done in the Church of England. And these weddings weren't always approved by couples' families. You include some brilliant tales in the book of people eloping and the battle to reach Gretna Green. Could you please recount some here for our listeners? Yes, one of the things that really surprised me was how common elopements were. I'd always imagined them as being something that you read about in Georgette Hire and that you know, there were a few instances of it. But when you look at it, thousands of people got married at Gretna Green over the years. There are some great stories too about people whose father set off in hot pursuit. One of my favourite ones is a couple who set off from near London and headed up north and the father set off in Hopsuit and the couple's carriage broke down before it had got more than a third of the way there and they ride the postboys very well and the postboys turned the carriage around and pointed it as if it was going back towards London and the couple hid in some nearby woods and the father's carriage came galloping up 
but he was convinced by the postboys that they were just belonged to a couple of sporting gentlemen who were you know, shooting in the woods. And so he went herring off up the road and carried on until he got to Scotland and was heading towards Gretna Green. He heard that there was a chase going in front of him at great speed. So he manfully overtook it at great speed at a little posting stop and raced up to the carriage door, ripped the door open, grabbed the man inside, hauled him down, started rolling around in the dust with him. I need to discover that this was a, a chase with two gentlemen in it who were guests of a local lord and were highly amused at the tale. And so he went on to Gretna Green, waited for his daughter and her young man to appear, only they were tipped off by the landlady of the inn and they went on a little tour of Scotland that lasted a couple of months and by the time they turned up to Gretna Green, she was pregnant and her dad had gone home and was a little bit beside himself. But I hope eventually reconciled himself to the fact of the marriage as most parents did. It's such a brilliant story. I really enjoyed reading it in the book. What restrictions could these Regency couples bypass by travelling to Gratna Green? Ah, well, under the Marriage Act, couples had to be 21. Both the man and the woman had to be 21 to get married or have their parents' permission. And in Scotland, you could be as young as, I think it was 12 for the girl and 14 for the boy and get married, legally get married. Also, in England, a wedding had to be announced on three successive Sundays, the bands being read, to allow for objections. And that could only be circumvented by either eloping or getting a special licence. And a special licence wouldn't really do if you were underage and trying to avoid your father's refusal. But quite a few people didn't even elope to Scotland. There are cases of people who just quietly got married in a parish some distance from where they lived and where no one had recognised the name being read in the bandsnap. And that was how Spencer Percival, the Prime Minister who was actually assassinated in 1812, got married to his wife and no one knew about it until it was all over. And then they wrote to her father who made the best of a bad job and was quite happy in the end. And it was, by all accounts, a good marriage. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. And of course, a wedding, especially of the rich, would be followed by a honeymoon. How did these compare to our modern day honeymoons? Well, the people would very often go and stay in a friend's house in the country and there'd be the servants that were with the house generally so that they wouldn't need to be in charge of those sort of responsibilities rather than staying in a hotel. But the biggest difference is that people in this period would very often take somebody with them, usually a friend or relative of the bride, her mother or her sister, would be with them for at least part of the time. And if you think about it, it's not as strange as it sounds because these couples hadn't had very long to get to know each other, certainly hadn't lived together as so many couples do these days. So it was a sudden shock to be with each other and relying on each other all day for weeks on end and having somebody else there to confide in or dilute the tensions that might arise had its advantages. Once they did arrive home, what would the early period of marriage look like for these couples? It would vary a lot. There'd be a lot of settling in and working out what roles they would play in the marriage. Most couples tried quite hard to please each other, particularly in the first part of the marriage. But there'd still be adjustments to make. Sometimes they wouldn't be living in their own house. They might be living with the groom's family or they might be having to live in lodgings if he was an army or navy officer. And they would be working out as couples do how they were going to get on and who would take the lead and make more decisions and what mattered most to each other. One instance, Betsy Fremantle married her husband in Naples and spent most of the first year of her marriage on board his ship, a frigate in the Navy, in wartime. And in action too, because he took part in an assault on Cadiz and then at Tenerife, about six months after they were married, he was very badly wounded and that was the affair in which Nelson lost his arm. And so she was having to nurse him and look after him as they sailed back to England and then once they got to England ashore in lodgings and also coped with the fact that she discovered that she was pregnant and she didn't know anyone in England at the time because she'd grown up on the continent and she was 19 at the time so it makes you realise that Some people had to grow up very quickly. You've talked a little bit in this interview so far about people becoming pregnant. How much pressure was there on these couples to have children? It was generally assumed that once you got married, you would have children and a fairly steady flow of them for some couples and some families were very large. But quite a few couples didn't, presumably not by choice. It would have been difficult to have been successful in avoiding that entirely by choice and that produced a great range of responses some people probably welcomed it privately if not openly some would have been very sad 
there was pressure in some couples to have a child to be carry on the estate if he was the heir to an estate. And some men, obviously, and I suppose some women, were particularly keen on having a successor to carry on the family line. But other couples with no children seem to have been particularly close. Quite a few of the couples that I've looked at who had particularly happy marriages, I was surprised notice were also childless ones. So it did have a broad range of effects. And clearly, Rory, the Regency era was a very different time to what we know today. How much autonomy did women have once they got married? It would vary a lot from couple to couple. The legal restrictions on women could be very severe if they were enforced to the letter. But there were workarounds too. For instance, legally the money was entirely controlled by the husband, except for the fact that almost all upper-class women and a great many women further down the social scale had marriage settlements that protected their finances a bit and gave them some private money to spend of their own, which gave them some autonomy. Generally speaking, women's position was worse if the marriage was bad. The way they could get out of an abusive or unpleasant marriage was quite limited. But in a happy marriage where there was a degree of mutual respect and equality, then it was quite surprisingly modern the way that couples got on. They'd divide the areas of life according to what mattered most to them. I mean, typically men would be more interested in field sports and wine and women in interior decoration and sometimes socialising. But that's a very broad generalisation. And of course, there'd be cases where it was the other way around. You mentioned abusive relationships there. At this point in the podcast, I feel we need to discuss a brutal part of the book. You say that a man had a legal right to use violence against his wife in this era, which is just so utterly shocking to a modern audience. Were there any cases in which a woman could leave or stand up for herself in these situations? There were ways in which women could deal with an abusive relationship. The best way was to appeal to her family or very close friends to intervene to remonstrate with the husband. And if he then continued to abuse her, she might then seek refuge with them. Now, that depended on there being family who would be supportive. And there are cases where there was no family or where the family was in too weak a position to provide support to her or where the family just refused to. Otherwise, she could get a restraining order in court, surprisingly enough. There's an instance of a not very well-off woman getting a court to restrain her husband, who promptly got the court to restrain her in retaliation. That was a, a very bad and unhappy marriage. People could, if things continued and go bad, they could separate from their husband. They usually needed some external support, but they could leave the marital home, they could set up independently. It would usually be arranged that there would be, in time, a legal agreement between the husband and wife where she would be able to go and have her own 
life independently of him. He would be protected from any debts that she ran up. He would not be liable for looking after any children that she subsequently had. And he would guarantee that he wouldn't come along and take her possessions that she accumulated after the separation. Now, none of this would necessarily stand up in court and there were instances of husbands violating this years later, terrible cases where a man would come along and you know, just take all the possessions that his wife had built up or take back children that he'd allowed her to look after. But they were fairly rare. Usually when separations happened, it was mutually advantageous for both sides to stick to the agreement and there was a fair bit of social pressure on them to do so. One point was that neither party could then remarry while the other one was alive and the only way to solve that problem was a divorce and divorces were extremely rare and generally limited to the upper classes. There were only a matter of a 100-odd divorces in the 50 years from 1750 to 1800 and rather more in the next 40 or 50 years after that. But it was that was the rarity, the normal end result of an unhappy marriage, whether it was abusive or not, but any really unhappy marriage was that the couple would separate and live apart. Okay, let's talk about the couples who did overcome obstacles. They're hopefully happy and they've lived to a good age. Once children are married off and they're left in their houses, what were their lives like then? Well, that would depend a bit on what interests they had and what interests they had in common. But there are certainly a number of cases of people talking about something that sounds very like an empty nest syndrome, the couples that were left alone with no children in the house and looking around and wondering how to amuse themselves and what to do. That might happen gradually because the children would be you know, going off to university or staying with friends or the family would be gradually diminishing. They would quite often travel together. They might go up to London, though older couples were less interested in London unless he was keen on politics. They would take part in the events in their neighbourhood and enjoy society there. And often they would have existing interests. I mean, he might be managing one of the farms on his estate or be interested in the sort of local affairs. She might be very involved with some local charities. Either of them might visit Bath or some other spa place or the seaside for their health, whether it was actually that the health wasn't bad or they just got a little bit bored at home and they liked a change of scene and their health was a very good excuse for that. But they were often forced to rely a little bit more on each other when there were no longer children around to distract them. So, Rory, we've covered love and marriage in the Regency era from the first moments of courtship to what we would now call, in air quotes, the empty nesters. Finally, how do you think we should approach Regency partnerships? Because of literature and period dramas, do we romanticise them too much as a modern audience? Well, we focus a lot on the first lush of happiness that came when couples fall in love and get married in that first year. 
But one of the joys of the book was finding so many couples whose lives were very happy for years on end, who were devoted to each other. They liked each other. They enjoyed spending time together. They had interests in common, whether it was politics or their children's lives or the local affairs or just enjoying nature, I think, sometimes. Couples who really got on well when... Looking at it from the outside, we might think, oh, that marriage could never work. I mean, he's 26 years older than her or she'd had such a checkered past that that was never going to work. And yet it very often does. One of my favourite stories in the book is about a young woman, Frances Winkley, who married a man who was, I think, 17 years older than her, confirmed rake absolutely terrible news, really bad news. Her brother tried to talk her out of it. She was wealthy. She was an heiress and she was determined to marry him and he wanted the money and he married her. And the first year or two of her marriage was horrible. He was having an affair. His friends mocked her. He was at stay out all night and she'd be, you know, sit up till he came home. But she was a very capable, determined young woman. And gradually she got the upper hand and they ended up a very happy couple. There was no doubt who was the more dominant person in that marriage. And she wanted him to love her as much as she loved him and she succeeded. How she did it, I don't quite know, but it shows that the truth is a lot stranger than fiction, that there are a lot of examples that rather confound our expectations. And that's one of the richnesses of studying the past. You actually find things that you wouldn't expect. Rory Muir is the author of the book Love and Marriage in the Age of Jane Austen. And if you're keen to find out more about the Regency period, then why not become a member of HistoryExtra.com to learn more in our Academy short course on the Regency. Just head to HistoryExtra.com forward slash Academy to find out more. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.